while the music played, while the music played, our, our son walked single file with his entire graduating class. They wore those shiny synthetic graduation gowns and, and walked, you know, ponderously. And uh, solemn words were spoken by school officials and teachers. Students received awards. Parents took lots and lots of pictures. And finally, our first kindergarten graduation ceremony was over. And I thought to myself, do kids really need a kindergarten graduation ceremony? I'll let, Mary's the expert, I'll let her decide. I mean, all, and, and, and in soccer, every kid gets a trophy. What kinds of expectations have been implanted or at least encouraged in kids? Who knows what a helicopter parent is? All right, so all the teachers, their hands went up. Helicopter parent is a mom or a dad who is overprotective, too involved in their child's life. They hover like a helicopter and then they swoop in. They're, they're afraid their child might fail or experience too much pain. What expectations has this encouraged in the children of helicopter parents? We raised a generation, your generation, and the ones a little older than you, and we told you, work hard, stay in school, graduate from college, and you will get a good job with good pay, interesting stuff, and you'll change the world. And what ended up happening was instead many graduated with tens of thousands of dollars in debt, and they're working at Starbucks. And there's nothing wrong with working at Starbucks. That's not my point. My point is that's not what they expected at all. I mean, you just can't pay back that debt if you become a Starbucks. But high expectations are not limited to the younger generation. I'm a boomer. What do boomers expect? Well, we expect to retire and live prosperously with good health and die in our sleep in our 90s. All the while leaving a good inheritance to our children. Are these reasonable expectations? Ask some of the wonderful people in our congregation, most of them are in the earlier service, but ask some of the ones, and many of them are now homebound, but that are in their 80s and their 90s. Ask them about life and expectations. There are a few exceptions in our midst, but almost all of them will tell you that growing old is not for sissies. They are often disappointed with their bodies and with their health or being stuck in long-term health care and slowly getting worse, or their children rarely visit, or now they're alone because their spouse of 40 years has passed away. Old age does not live up to their expectations. And here come the boomers. Now, whatever age you are right now, if you're in high school, college, whatever age, whichever generation you belong to, is life living up to your expectations? Is where you are right now. If you're younger, you have probably higher probabilities. But it also probably depends on your expectations. If you love steak and dessert and you've been promised a ribeye and chocolate cake for dinner and you get there and they give you a carrot and a prune, how do you feel? However, if you're starving in the wilderness and you're not expecting anything for dinner and they give you a carrot and a prune, how do you feel? Depends a lot on your expectations. Independent of your age, through kind of across generational lines, what typically do people in our country, what are their expectations of life? And that's a long 
list. We'll kind of put a little bit of it, a little bit on the screen. But life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Robeson says, revolution. We expect no one to kill us or use violence to hurt us. We actually don't expect anybody to even yell angrily at us. And we expect people to be reasonable or reasonably nice when they interact with us. We expect our property to be protected and not stolen or destroyed by someone. That includes people tricking us out of our money by stealing our identity. If someone violates these expectations, what do we expect? Justice. We expect a career commensurate with our education and experience with an appropriate salary and benefits and pay raises. We expect to have excellent health care available and emergency services, firemen, policemen, ambulances. We expect truth. We are incredibly disappointed when people lie to us. We expect our spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend to be faithful and not cheat on us and lie to us. We expect our children to do us with respect and not neglect us or cheat us. We expect the economy to be reasonably stable. We feel betrayed and cheated when we lose 40 to 50% of our net worth and our houses are underwater through no fault of our own. We expect to have good food. Some of you have it. We don't expect to get cancer or die suddenly at any age below 90. We certainly do not expect for an enemy to invade us and destroy our land and kill most of our young men and give birth to our families. Okay, so if those are our expectations of the culture, how do we feel when, let's say, let's, let's go for really high, when 75 to 80% of those expectations are met? Well, well how do you feel if, you know, your spouse is faithful and loves you, no one's lied to you, stole from you, but a drunk driver hits you and you'll never walk again or you'll always live in pain? Are your expectations going to change? Or, or you have loving children and a great career, but your spouse cheats on you. How are your expectations doing? See, we don't expect 75 to 80% of those expectations to be realized. We expect them all. And whatever isn't coming through, that's the one we tend to focus on. How's it working out? See, I'm convinced that our expectations are unreasonable. They are not the true expectations that God wants us to have. And when our unreasonable expectations are not fulfilled for things God never promised that he would give us, we tend to get disappointed with God, maybe even angry with God. Angry with God for not giving us what he never said he would. See, the devil loves to convince you that you're entitled to all kinds of things and that you should have these high expectations. Now, my job each Sunday is to explain to you what God tells us in the Bible. It's the classic stuff that Christians have believed for centuries. And I'm hoping through this, over an accumulation of time, that you will choose to believe what God says and develop a biblical worldview. And that means a worldview that's shaped, that the Bible shapes what you think is good or evil, right or wrong, what's worth doing, what's not worth doing. That there is a heaven and a hell that you have to believe in Jesus to get right with God, that what God's purposes are for you right now. And today, we're looking at what God says we should expect in this life. Would you please read aloud? But no, I'm going to read the entire text to you, and then we'll come back to this. Let me get something close to the screen. 
from John chapter 15. We are in John's chap- John chapters 13 through 17, the last night uh, before Jesus died. And I'm going to read it to you. This is Jason 3.23. But the Lord hates me. Noted it also, but noted it had hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on, my, on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we have been, we've been convinced to expect things that you've not told us to expect. We pray now that you would, that you would be powerful with your spirit Tell us what you told what you said in your word, and we thank you, Lord, that we would have more of a look at the word now and know what we need to learn in this day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you read with me? We're going to put it on screen, some excerpts from what I just read. Let's read it out loud together. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Why would anyone sign up to follow Jesus after he said that? Now, a lot of you in here are committed followers of Jesus. Did anybody clue you in on that before you signed up? Say, hey, you know, they're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. Did they tell you that's part of the deal? Now, it's all through the New Testament, but the early Christians were persecuted. They were hated. Uh, Peter um, talks about it. Paul talks about it. John talks about it. Just, just from Peter, Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And then as he's writing to slaves, but it applies to all of us, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Now there are so many places in the world where Christians are persecuted violently. Recent years, where have we seen it? ISIS in the Middle East a lot. This, is, this is book is called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a Zoas edition. I love it. It's got hundreds of stories of Christians down through the centuries who gave their life for their faith. I highly recommend that you read it. It's very inspiring. Persecution in this country is usually not physically violent. Now, we still have Hollywood and the media that ridicules Christians and acts as if our beliefs are, are ignorant or stupid. Students are often pressured to abandon the belief that you have to believe in Jesus to be reconciled to God or to change their moral code to agree with the moral code of our culture, which constantly changes. Jesus and the apostles clearly say that we should not expect to be treated fairly or nicely, or honestly, or even legally. When people find out that we are followers of Jesus, some of them will persecute us. Now, when people are mistreated, when you're mistreated, how do you feel like responding? Most of us kind of want to 
get a pound of flesh, get back at the person. Fight back, maybe even violently. But Jesus just broke the whole mold when he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul writes in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this applies whenever someone treats you like you're their enemy, whether it's because you're a Christian or just because they're mad at you, lying to you, stealing from you, ridiculing you, bad-mouthing you, just being mean to you. You're not to treat them as an enemy in return. Instead, you're to love them. Now, not necessarily like them, but agape love them. And agape love in the New Testament is this amazing concept of regardless of how the person is treating you unconditionally, being committed to their good and doing what is best for them. You are to be committed to what is best for the people who treat you like an enemy. You are to pray for them. And hopefully praying every day for them will soften your heart toward them. It may even be used by the Holy Spirit to soften their heart toward you. That's what I believe. All right, I want you to stop. You know, if maybe, maybe you're in high school or older, almost everybody has an answer to this question. Who has been treating you like they are your enemy recently? You must love them. You must be committed to doing what is best for them, no matter how they treat you. You must pray for them and ask God to bless them in every way. In this way, God lets you be a part of overcoming evil with good. That's what it means to imitate Jesus. Do you, you realize that this is exactly what Jesus did for you? You were his enemy, and he sacrificed his life for you so that you could be reconciled to God, become part of his family, and be his constant companion. And he calls us to follow his example. Bless them. Whoever you feel is mistreating you. Now, we're in chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John, and Jesus' final words that night before he died, and a lot of what he said was trying to clue the disciples in on what to expect. He says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And then at the end of chapter 15, well, verse 16, he, he says the following, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the, the world. Now, tribulation can include any hardship you go through, cancer, job loss, war, famine, theft, violence, a cheating spouse, loss of a loved one, ungrateful or neglect, neglectful children, debilitating illness, crushing accidents, losing your life savings through no fault of your own. Jesus says on that night, among other things, expect the following, you will be persecuted by the world and you will have tribulation in this life. Much said, Saints? some overwhelmingly fantastic good news. First, everyone's life includes tribulation. So aren't we glad that we have a God that tells it like it is so we don't get the wrong expectations? The devil loves for us to buy into the expectations of our culture that, oh, it's all going to be great and not just 75, 80%, but 100% of my expectations. It just sets us up for disappointment and depression. Then we fail. We all fail. When we think 
just don't work out. You've got to love to do that. But our God says, no, you're going to have persecution and tribulation. Oh, here's just a quick aside. My last name is Duncan. Duncan is a Scottish name. I found out recently that the Duncan clan, like all the Scottish clans, has a motto. Guess what the Duncan motto is? Prepare to suffer. (laughs) Who knew? We live in a fallen world where everyone experiences tribulation. So be prepared. Go through it with what God has promised, not what he has not promised. He hasn't promised you won't be persecuted or won't have tribulation or be mistreated or fail or all kinds of things. But what he has promised, we're just going to look at four things briefly that he has promised. He promises to pour his love into our hearts, to make his home inside us and never leave us. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He promises to give us all the power we need to persevere. Paul wrote, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He promises to use all tribulations to transform us. James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then the great promise that many of you have memorized, he promises to work everything, even horrible tribulation, for good, for your good. We know that in everything, God works for good in the lives of those who love the Lord and are called according to his promise. But none of these promises will give you much joy unless you have a biblical worldview that believes that eternity is much more important than the temporary pleasures and successes of this life. I mean, for example, you like it if people are are mean to you through no fault of your own. Does it make you happy? Well, it doesn't tend to, but what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Unless our experience, unless your experience of heaven is more important to you than your experience of this life, how are you going to rejoice when you're being reviled? Unless becoming like Jesus is more important to you than long life and prosperity, how can you count it all joy when you meet various trials? Unless you care more about introducing others to Jesus, like the Alpha, then counterattacking, how are you going to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Now, I, I want to be really clear. I certainly do not have this all handled. But whenever I feel mistreated, and sometimes I'm mistreated, sometimes I'm sometimes mistreated, I've got to stop. Give the situation to God. Pray through whomever is treating me as though I'm their enemy. And ask God to bless me. And ask what I can learn from the situation. Now, usually, given my heart, I have to do that various times. Once doesn't do it. Because I tend to just, I'm just prone to grab that sucker back and let it just replay and replay in my mind. So I have to stop various times. Give, give the situation to God. Pray and ask God to bless them in every way. And it makes a huge difference in my heart. 
See, most of us look at life situations something like this, this diagram. It's much better than if I tried to draw it, believe me. Um, we think of the, you know, whatever the tribulation is. It might not be a person. It could be cancer. It could be losing our job. It could be any number of things. We just, we're like Charlie Brown, and we just have this great big, huge monster that's too big for us. And the monster often actually is too big for us. They're real enemies. They're real tribulations. Jesus said that you would experience persecution and tribulation. The problem is that we look at them inaccurately. This is not a biblical perspective of the follower of Jesus. The real picture is not this one. The real picture is this one. Compared to God, those monsters, those difficulties, those, that tribulation is just a teeny weeny thing, and God's hand is between you and your end. But he is so much bigger. So much bigger. Promise that you can count on him. We don't always understand. You know, I, 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 how many of you know Veggie Tales? I love Veggie Tales. Okay, if you have, if you have, you know, I love Veggie Tales. And the staff was goofing around this week, and someone started singing the song, uh, "Oh, where is my hairbrush?" I always like it because it's that bald cucumber that sings it. And so, um, uh, when he says, "No hair for my hairbrush," that's my part. Um, but I love the Veggie Tale song. Where it goes, God is bigger than the boogeyman. Bigger than Godzilla and monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman, and he's watching over you and me. But see, I think it's actually an advantage to think of our monsters in cartoon form. Luther said the devil can't stand his monsters. God is so much bigger, infinitely more powerful and larger and wiser. When we focus on the tribulation, it looks bigger than we can handle. It may be bigger than we can handle, but God can handle it. Instead of focusing on the situation, we need to focus on God. Remind ourselves of his promises that he'll be with us. He'll give us all the power we need. He'll transform us. He'll actually bring good out of horrible situations. We need to constantly picture how huge and powerful God is, how easily he can handle our situations. And then trust that he knows what he's doing. Even if we don't have a clue what he's doing. 